Smartcast. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 101 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. As we start this second century of the Burden of Command podcast here, I'm honored to start it off with a bang. U.S. Army retired Major General Craig Weldon. Craig's leadership journey started when he became an Eagle Scout at age 14, and in 30 years later, he was the youngest general in the United States Army. Now, if you combine that with another nine years as a member of the Senior Executive Service with the United States Marine Corps, URA, he has over 17 years at the highest levels of the U.S. military. He has led thousands of soldiers, sailors, Marines, and civilians while serving for 10 years in Europe and another 12 years in the Pacific. He is also an accomplished speaker and author of the book, Leadership, The Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best. Now, I could go on about all of retired Major General Craig Weldon's other accomplishments, but I'm not. I'm going to go ahead and get out of the way and let you get into this fantastic discussion I had with the general. Enjoy. All right, listeners, welcome to this uh, episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Brian, and today's guest, as you can tell from uh, the, the bio there, is going to be a very special guest. Uh, General Weldon, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Well, thanks so much, Earl. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, I am I am honored. Uh, you know, the bio, you've done a little bit of stuff with your life there, huh? Yeah, I've, I've sort of spent most of my time in the military. I grew up in an Air Force family. Uh, I went to college on an Army ROTC scholarship, followed by what I thought was going to be four years in the Army. It turned out to be 30 years in the Army. I then went in the private sector for about seven years and did uh, consulting work, mostly for the Army and Homeland Security uh, community. But then my wife, uh, who desperately wanted to go back to Hawaii, which was our last assignment in the Army, uh, said, uh, I'm ready to move back to Hawaii. We were living in Florida at the time. So I started looking for opportunities there, and the Marine Corps created this wonderful new senior executive position to move Marines from Okinawa to Guam and build a base in Guam. And I threw my name in the hat and was lucky enough to get selected. So I spent nine wonderful years with the Marine Corps uh, until my wife said, once again, I'm ready to move on. <laughs> We're too far from family. So here I am now in Bluffton, South Carolina, uh, uh, my military days are over, but I try to leverage the experiences that I had over those many decades and pass it back to the next generation as much as I can. No, I, I love that. I love that. And uh, before we dive into kind of more of that story and, and uh, in your book, Leadership, uh, the Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best, I'm very curious to hear your take on uh, what is the kind of foundational question of this show what does the phrase burden of command mean to you? Well, I think it means different things to different people. The term burden itself implies a negative uh, in the general uh, sense, uh, but it's not. I can tell you from firsthand experience and certainly all of your listeners who have either been in the military, in command, uh, or in the civilian sector as a leader, uh, a CEO, that it is less of a burden and more of a privilege, but it comes with responsibilities which are pretty significant. And uh, those responsibilities are for the organization and everybody in it. 
So if there is a burden, it is that you, every night you go to sleep and you uh, think about what you're going to do the next day. Uh, it is in the best interest of whatever organization it is that you lead and all the people that are for uh, with you on that uh, journey, but certainly also for the customers. In the case of the military, the customers are the people of the United States. In the case of a company, it's uh, whatever product or service you provide. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And again, I'm looking forward to this uh, conversation because, you know, I mean, that's a great way to, to look at it uh, and, and our shared experiences there. So, uh, you know, uh, I served enlisted in the Marine Corps and uh, spent some time in Okinawa uh, back in the late 90s and then ended up at uh, Marine Corps Station Beaufort there, not too far from Bluffton, South Carolina. So uh, we, we, we've got a lot of the same experiences and especially with the, uh, the wife getting itchy and wanting to move around. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I suspected our view of that, that phrase was going to be, you know, fairly similar and, and it is. And, and what I love about doing this podcast is getting to ask people from all walks of life, that question and hearing how everybody views it mostly the same, but just slightly different. And, and, and I like that. It's a, it's good to see those insights from different groups of people. Yeah, the best jobs I had in the military was when I was in command, but it was also, you know, the jobs that had the most responsibility. So it's a bit of a double-sided coin. Yeah, well, definitely, definitely. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, doing the math there, total of about 40 years of service in uh, the military and military-related uh, jobs. Um is it safe to say for the folks that that's where pretty much the bulk of your book, Leadership, The Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best, uh, th those ideas and principles came from? Was that experience? You know, there's an awful lot of it there, but you'd be surprised as how much has nothing to do with the military. Because when I set out to write the book, it was not for a military audience. It was for a civilian audience. And so I wanted to, I, I was very careful to make sure that whatever military lessons I learned, uh, which I wanted to pass on, were transferable to anybody and everybody. And so you will find lots of lessons in there, uh, both good and bad, that have nothing to do with the military, and some things that do have any things to do the mil with the military. If, if your listeners want to get a taste of the book, you can go to my website, uh, craigweldon.com, and on the book tab, there's a sample chapter. It's uh, chapter 18. It's called The Light at the End of the Tunnel, and it's about a uh, difficult time in my life early on and how I overcame it and how other people, other leaders, helped me get through that difficult time. And that difficult experience I had had nothing to do with the military. I was in the military. I was a young lieutenant at the time, but the, the challenge I had was not military-related. So, again, I encourage uh, your listeners to go read the sample chapter. It takes all of 10 minutes to get through. I wrote this book uh, with a goal towards making it uh, full of storytelling, and uh, I think I've achieved that. Uh, it's won three national awards. It is a number one bestseller in Amazon in five countries. Thousands of people have downloaded it in the past year and a half or so since it's been on Amazon. It's available in print, digital form, and audiobook. And virtually every organization that I speak to on leadership 
has purchased a copy of the book for every attendee. So I'm, it's a very, very good partner with my, my leadership presentation. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I'm glad to hear it's having that much success because, you know, what I've, I've been able to glean from it is, uh, you know, it, it is a good book and I like the, the, the storytelling aspect. And, uh, you know, I'm a person who really believes that uh, every once in a while, uh, the universe comes into alignment to, to make things happen just so. And and what my listeners will, will figure out very quickly here is, so this is episode uh, 101. Uh, episode 99 was with a gentleman named Len Guerin, uh, who does a lot of work with uh, John Wooden. And your book opens up with a John Wooden quote. And so I think these three episodes lining up to be back-to-back uh, is probably going to be the best episodes I've had in this series. Uh, and I want to circle back to that John Wooden piece there, because you start off your book talking about something that is very strong in those previous two podcasts as character being the leadership basic building block. Yeah, when I was... Um... When I initially wrote the first draft manuscript, I didn't really know what to do with it. And uh, I found a fellow on the on the West Coast in California who was an editor slash publisher. I hired him to review my manuscript and tell me what he thought. And I paid him a couple of hundred bucks and he came back and he said, nobody's going to read this. Mm. <laughs> and I said, really? Why is that? He said, because it's a memoir and memoirs are the story of the author's life. And the problem is that you are not famous. You are not Michelle Obama. You are not Amoroso. You are not famous. You are not infamous. And people are not going to buy a memoir for somebody that they don't even know. Mm. Uh, so if you are a celebrity and well-known, then they're going to buy the book because of who you are, not what's inside the book. Uh, but that's not the case. And I said, well, you know, I didn't intend to write a memoir. How do you suggest I... Uh, change this because it was intended to be focused on a leadership book using the stories of my life to make those points. And he said, all the points are there. They're buried in the stories. Go find them, pull them out, make them chapter titles, and then fold your stories underneath. And I said, okay. So I took a yellow highlighter, literally, with a paper manuscript, and I went through the entire book, and everywhere I found the leadership nugget that I thought warranted a... Uh, a chapter, I highlighted it. Well, I turned a 14-chapter memoir into a 24-chapter leadership book. And as I said earlier, it's won three national awards and is uh, the Citadel uh, Military College up in Charleston, bought 300 copies. Uh, my book is now required reading at the Los Angeles Fire Department Leadership Academy. Um, I just did a presentation last week to a, uh, a uh, master's program in leadership uh, in uh, Georgia uh, at Emory University, and they purchased a copy for all their uh, students. Uh, so it's, it's, I think, found its way into the leadership genre, but done doing so through storytelling. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned John Wooden and the issue of character. After I got done with that and I got my 24 chapters, I then hired this guy to help me get the book across the finish line and published. And he said to me, which of these chapters do you think are the most important? And I said, well, first and foremost is character, because if you don't have the foundation in character, you're not going to be a very effective leader. 
And he said, well, then that should be chapter one. And so I wrote, I put that at the very beginning of the book because it is, I think, a foundational aspect of a strong leader. And I put John Wooden's quotation uh, at the front of the chapter uh, because I have so much respect for John Wooden as a leader and as a person who developed leaders. For your listeners who may not know who John Wooden is, he was a coach of the uh, UCLA Bruin basketball team uh, who won the NCAA championship five out of seven years. He actually won 10 championships, I think, national championship. But he taught more than just basketball. He taught teamwork. He taught his players about life skills. And uh, he was just a truly remarkable human being. He also happened to be a fraternity brother of mine at Purdue University, several uh several generations removed, but he was, when I came into my fraternity and learned that John Wooden had been uh, a fraternity brother there, uh, he became sort of an iconic figure for, for all of us. Uh, he was a five foot, 10 inch basketball player at Purdue University and became an All-American three times as a player. And then as you just heard, all his accolades as a national coach. But to the quote that you mentioned, the quote is the following, Talent is God-given. Be humble. Fame is man-given. Be grateful. Conceit is self-given. Be careful. Let me say it one more time. Talent is God-given. Be humble. Fame is man-given. Be grateful. Conceit is self-given. Be careful. And so as you read through the chapter in my book about character, one of the strong character traits for an effective leader is humility. And that is a trait that John Wooden, um, you know, really focused on throughout his life and passed on to his basketball players. And one of the things that I try to uh, remember uh, as I become older. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and character was really paramount with, uh, with coach Wooden. I mean, he had another quote that, uh, a lot of people may have heard that uh, you know, it basically says the difference between reputation and character is reputation is what other people think you are. Character is what you really are. Sure. And, uh, you know, so so character, and, and for the folks here who don't really get it, why is character so important to strong leadership? Well, it's been my experience that the character of a leader comes out either positively or negatively when times are toughest. When you are stressed, that's when your character is, is tested the most. Uh, character is a, a kind of an umbrella term for so many other traits, uh, ambition, perseverance, self-awareness, empathy, humility, honesty, trust, integrity, charisma, and always taking responsibility of being a leader, often while subordinating your own personal interest. Uh, there's another character trait, which I like to talk about, uh, which is called grit. And that means you get through the difficult times, the really difficult times. If you do, you have what they call grit. I don't know how it's defined in the Webster's Dictionary, uh, but you know, having grit means you have really persevered through difficult times. Oh, yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, I've had a few guests on here talked about grit before. And, and, you know, I'm sure this was your experiences in the Army, but that was kind of 
the foundation of everything we did. Uh, well, in your experiences with the Marines, that was really the foundation of everything that the Marines put you through was to show you what you could go through and come out on the other end still standing and still functioning, right? Yeah. So, you know, anybody who's been to the Marine Corps and went to boot camp uh, went through the crucible in mm -hmm. recent years. It hasn't been around forever, but certainly in the last 20 plus years, the crucible has been sort of the capstone event of boot camp for all Marines. And at the end of the crucible, which is last several days in the mud, the drill sergeant will come up and hand that new recruit uh, the Eagle Globe and Anchor that he or she so uh, went through uh, so much to earn. And as you know, being a former Marine, uh, if you are a somebody once said, what does it take for the average American to become a Marine? And the answer is, average Americans don't become Marines. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> they just don't, because it takes a special characteristic to get the Eagle Globe and Anchor at the end of boot camp. Uh, and having just spent the last nine years of my life surrounded by wonderful, very, very capable Marines, I can tell you how proud I have been to be associated. And it's generations, uh, the young generation that are raising their right hand and saying, send me. Uh, are equal to the to the uh, task as uh, the World War II generation that my dad served in, uh, that Tom Brokaw once called the greatest generation. I have not lost faith in young people like so many others have because I've seen firsthand, particularly in the last nine years, what our nation is able to produce through these young Marines. They're wonderful. Yeah, no, I'll agree with you 100%. Every time I hear somebody talking about... Uh, uh, bad about millennials you know i remind them that you know now this global war on terror is over 20 years which means every single person serving right now has enlisted multiple times knowing what was going on and they did it full voluntary so that that's true and 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 most of them that are enlisting today were not even born on 9-11 right exactly now, you mentioned the Crucible, and I don't know what it looks like today because I was, I want to say, one of the second or third platoons that went through it. But, you know, one of the things that, that really sticks out in my mind, and I tell this story very often, and it's about grit, was, uh, so for the listeners who aren't uh, familiar with what the Crucible is, at least when I did it, it was, it was a three-day event. You got one and a half MREs for the entire three days. Uh, you got three hours of sleep over that time frame. If you uh, pulled Firewatch, you got four hours if you didn't. And it was a grand total of like 64, 65 miles of forced marches, right? And then you had to do all these mental tasks in between. Well, but the last event, before you go to what uh, the general here described as uh, the Eagle Glow and Anchor Ceremony, it's a 12-mile uh, forced march uh, from the Quonset Huts out... Uh, in the bivouac area, uh, back across Petro's parade deck. Well, at least my drill instructors at the time, what they did, and it was evil genius, they would march us around. By that time, you got pretty good at figuring out, okay, we went three miles, we went six miles, and all that good stuff. And so it was about eight or nine miles, and you come around this corner, and there's those Quonset huts where you started out at the morning. And they did this really great job of selling. Like, oh, we took a wrong turn. We're right back at the beginning. We're going to have to start our route from scratch. 
and, and they sold it right and you you could see on everybody every recruit's faces this decision point is it worth it to me after having already marched nine miles to start from scratch and march 12 more miles along the the route to become a marine or is this just too much and some folks would tap out at that point i mean this is you're like a week or two from graduation at this point and some folks would tap out right there and i thought that was looking back that was a great just kind of mental grit check what do you think about that no i agree and every service has a form of that um, I, I, I wasn't a serving Marine. I was a senior executive with the Marines. So I was in and around as a civilian uniform Marines for nine years straight. However, in my 30 years in the army, um, I attended ranger school when I was a Lieutenant and that's a nine week course. And it's a very demanding course. And for any of your listeners who have been to it or even served in the army, they know about ranger school. It's kind of like special forces training or seal training, uh, or uh, survival uh, training, uh, each of the services has the ability to put together uh, scenarios in training events that test the mental agility and the mental toughness of the attendees. And I think the Crucible does that for the Marine Corps, uh, and Ranger School does that for the Army, as does the Special Wep- uh, Special Forces School, and this certainly SEAL training. They do that uh, regularly throughout the course. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when things get really, really tough, uh, the service, the institution wants to know that uh, who is going to keep going and who is going to quit. And so they don't want to learn that on the battlefield. They want to learn that in training. And that's the reason they put those kinds of things in place. And and, and those skills are directly relatable and, and very much something that, that our private sector counterparts need to develop in their workforce as well, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a different, it's, you know, I'd, I'd say they're apples and oranges, but they're both fruit. Right. I like that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, because that's where, you know, you mentioned it being when when kind of times are bad. And that's what causes most of, of the, the organizations that, that we work with. Uh, that That's really their their make or break moment is, is are they resilient? Do they have the character and grit to be able to make it through those times? Or do they just fold and scatter to the wind and fold themselves into other organizations? Uh, so, so having that mental toughness is paramount to getting through those rough times and staying resilient, right? Yeah. I, let me tell a story if I may. Sure. Uh, it's a, it's a metaphor, but imagine yourself walking down a path and you get to a fork in the road and you, you're trying to get to a destination and you actually think that you're supposed to go right at the fork of the road because that's the direction that you intend to go. And that's the, uh, the, the, you know, the reward is at the end of that thing. But circumstances, whatever, whatever they may be, take you down a different path. And at the time, you think, this is not supposed to be happening to me. I should have gone right at the fork of the road, but circumstances took me left. I've had, I don't know how many occasions in my life, both personal and professional, where that has happened. I found myself at the fork of the road, and circumstances took me in a direction that I didn't expect. Let me tell two quick stories, one personal and one professional. The personal one is gets back to the sample chapter in my book, chapter 18, which you can find 
on my website. I tell this story in Chapter 18. But I married my college sweetheart coming out of Purdue University, and she came to Fort Hood, Texas, introduced to the Army for the first time. We had two wonderful years together, and I thought uh, I had a perfect marriage and all all things were going to lead to nirvana. And after two years, she left me, Mm -hmm. and I was absolutely crushed. It was the first failure that I had experienced in my life, and I didn't know how to deal with that very well. And the way I did deal with it is I just invested myself in work. I just stayed at work because I didn't want to go home to an empty house, to an empty apartment, and just stare at the walls. So I just, to keep my mind busy, I just stayed at work. Now, at that time, this was 1976, I was a tank battalion maintenance officer, and my office was in the motor pool. I had 58 tanks, another 50 or so vehicles that I was responsible for taking care of. So I found myself one Friday night in my office in the motor pool at 7.30 and in walked the brigade commander. Now, for your non-military listeners, the brigade commander was about five levels above me. He commanded 4,000 soldiers. I was just one of them. Well, we had never met until this day. And he walked into my office and he said, Lieutenant, let's go take a walk in the motor pool. And I thought, what a perfect storm of bad luck. Here I am going through all these personal problems and then walks the brigade commander to inspect the motor pool on a Friday night at 730. So I got up from my desk. I went out. We walked up and down the tank line back and forth and back and forth for about 25 minutes. He never once talked about the maintenance of the tanks. He never once talked about my personal problem. All he did was talk about the challenges that he had faced in his life and how he had overcome them. And when we got back to the front gate of the motor pool, he put his arm on my shoulder, his hand on my shoulder, and he said, there's light at the end of this tunnel. You just can't see it yet. Have a great weekend. Mm. And he left. And what he did for me that evening was he took me out of the depths of despair that I was in, and he convinced me that senior leaders effective senior leaders care about everybody in their organization because somebody told him about this young lieutenant who was going through a difficult time and could use a little encouragement. So he, on a Friday night, went down, found me, and and gave me that encouragement. Now, the rest of that story is that I left Fort Hood about three months later, four months later, and I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky, where I was uh, in the advanced course for armor officers. I was a, I was a tanker. And about four months into that course, I attended a wedding, and I met a young lady named Karen Lusk, who was 22 years old. And six months later, we were married, and she is right around the corner from me this day, having been my wife for 44 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have two wonderful children, grown, have their own families, their own careers. I cannot imagine life turning out differently than it has. I took a left at the fork of the road back in 1976, thinking that I should have taken a right. And in fact, there was gold at the end of that that, uh, path. There was a light at the end of that tunnel that I just couldn't see in 1976. One other postscript. Fast forward, I'm now a battalion commander at Fort Knox, Kentucky. I have a tank battalion. I have a about, I had a combined arms task force, actually. I had about a 1,000 soldiers, and I learned that three-star general retired Jack Woodmancy was coming to Fort Knox for a visit, and he was my brigade commander that went on that walk with me that evening. I called the protocol office, and I said, you know, I used to work for 
then Colonel Woodman C., now General Woodman C., retired. And I'd love to have him come down and give my officers a presentation on leadership. Do you think you could ask him if he'd be willing to do that? And they said that we, we, we will, and they did, and he agreed. And when he showed up in my battalion and I introduced him, I introduced him by telling the story of that evening in the motor pool. And I said, you know, that's the essence of true leadership, demonstrating to everybody in your organization that you care. So I've taken that, what I call rock, that lesson that I've learned all along my life that I personally experienced. I put it in my own rucksack and I've carried it with me my entire life, recognizing that just about everybody you encounter has challenges in their life. And, and if you're a leader, you can help people with those challenges just by giving them a smile, uh, some encouragement, and telling them there usually is light at the end of the tunnel. You know, and I love that. And this ties into uh, great stories, absolutely great stories. And it ties in um, with a few things, right? You have a chapter in your book called Are You My Mentor? And what I love about this is this is a story of somebody who, you know, mentored you. And I think I think that is a great thing that a lot of our folks in the private sector maybe don't realize about these inflection points towards people's careers, uh, Stanley Crystal has a great story he tells. It's very similar about uh, you know being in an exercise and and completely screwing up the exercise and having his uh, senior officer come over and, and like you said put a hand on his shoulder and and tell him he did a good job. And he says it was then he realized that a great leader can let you fail without being a failure. And then you know full disclosure, uh, my business partner here at the Leadership Phalanx. Uh, during Desert Storm, was the commo chief for uh, General Paul Funk uh, Sr. He was a tank uh, commo chief. And uh, so he, he was talking about how he had a, somewhat of a similar experience under uh, General Funk's command where some things went wrong and he got some encouraging words and you know he went on to have a, a much longer, more successful career. But that's really the power of what good leadership and being a good mentor to people can have is changing them from having a dud career to having a stellar career, right? Yeah, I I never worked for General Funk, uh, but I know of him. Uh, I was an armor officer. He was an armor officer. He commanded the 3rd Armored Division in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. By the way, his son, Paul Fun is also named Paul Jr., mm -hmm. uh, became a general officer as well. I'm not sure where he is or if he's still on active duty or not. But I remember back in Desert Shield, Desert Storm era, uh, this is 30 years ago, uh, we had some general officers uh, who were superb and uh, are part of the reason that we had so much success in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and the ground war only lasted four days. Right. These are people who uh, were uh, birthed in the military during the Vietnam War and came out, and rather than leave the service at its most difficult time in the 70s, and that was a very difficult time for the military, they decided to stay in to fix the military, and they did exactly that. And it was uh, vindicated 20 years later during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, I believe. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And, and so for, for, our, uh, for our listeners here, you know, this chapter, Are You My Mentor?, 
you talk about four types of mentors. Yeah. yeah. So, so what are those four types? So um, I, this is personal. I mean, there's, I don't think you're going to find this written anywhere else. But in my view, there are four types of mentors. There is assigned, which means, hey, Earl, I'm assigning you to be uh, John's mentor. There is self-appointed, where Earl decides to be John's mentor. There is sought after, where John seeks Earl out to be his mentor. And then there is what I call uh, virtual mentorship. And what does virtual mentorship mean? It means that as you go down your life and as you go down the path of life personally or professionally, you will experience things. Some of them will be good. Some of them will be bad. And if you each of those things that you experienced are represented by a rock on the path. Uh, so as you go and you've got a rucksack on your back. So as you walk down the path and you have these experiences, what I suggest people do is pick up those rocks, those things, those metaphorical rocks and put them in your rucksack and carry them with you along your journey in life to remind you of the things that you saw other people do that you were very, very impressed with, but also to remind you of the things that you saw that you were not impressed with to remind you not to do those things. All of us have probably worked for people who, after observing the way they behaved, the way they led, we said to ourselves, wow, if I ever get to a position like them, I hope that I'm like that. Or you watch somebody and you say, wow, <laughs> if I ever get to a position like that, I hope I'm never like that. Right. Well, I've I've had dozens of such experiences in my life, and I've picked up all those rocks and put them in my rucksack and carried them with me along so I can use it. So virtual mentorship is basically picking up uh, the observations through observation, what others have done, and then carrying that forward with you. Most of my leadership techniques I didn't invent. I borrowed from others that I saw, and I put them in my rucksack. And Colonel Woodmansey coming down, uh, in my uh, motor pool in 1976 is just one example. I thought, wow, he made such an impression on me as a leader uh, in a young lieutenant. And we had never met, as I said, until that evening, that I've carried that with me the rest of my life. I've used it many, many times. And I tell that story in chapter 18. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it. And I, you, you kind of beat me to it. I was hearing to ask. So, you know, being being a humble uh, guy, how many times have you did that for someone else and put their career uh, back on track? Because, you know, yeah, I, think, I don't, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I just, cause I don't keep track. I don't think right. it's a thing. You just, you follow your instincts. You do, you do what's right. It's like uh, the old NCO uh, motto that says never walk by a discrepancy Right. Or, you know, do something because it's the right thing to do, even when nobody's walking, watching, uh, plant a tree under which you have no expectation to benefit from its shade. Uh, don't run a red light just because nobody's there to see. I mean, there's all kinds of metaphors for yeah. doing the right thing. And it all gets back to that basic foundational issue of character, which is so, so critically important. I think character is so important that when I got done with that chapter and um, and I went to the next chapter, I thought to myself, wow, I don't know if uh, if I've talked enough about uh, character. And, and my book was not intended to be uh, 
a story about character. But by the same token, I wanted to make sure that people had the ability to to um, uh, to study it more. So I actually put a reference in the end of chapter one to two other books uh, that I thought uh, were worth reading that were all about character. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it is. I mean, character is is extremely important. And, uh, you know, I think you're right. I I don't know that anybody can ever really talk enough about how important character is and and really drive the point home because a lot of people, like, they say they get it. They say they understand it. But, you know, as we've seen in, in recent uh, in recent times, there's been a lot of great leaders that have, have fallen mightily because, you know, they, they yeah. didn't pay attention to their character. That's right. And some of your listeners may be wondering which of these books I recommended. So let me tell them. Go for it. One of them, one of them is called Building Your Leadership Legacy. It's all about character. And it was written by Robert C. Carroll. And Robert C. Carroll is a retired Army colonel, taught leadership at West Point. The other book is called The Character Edge, Leading and Winning with Integrity. And it was written by Lieutenant General, now retired, Robert L. Caslin, Jr. and Dr. Michael D. Matthews. Now, General Caslin used to be the superintendent of West Point. He's currently the president of the University of South Carolina. And Michael Matthews is still a professor of teaching leadership up at West Point. So... Both of those books by those three authors are worth uh, reading if you want to strengthen your own character. Outstanding. And I'll have the links to those and your uh, free chapter in the show notes so folks can uh, can pick those books up and add them to the arsenal. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stress this for the listeners. Add them alongside leadership, the art of inspiring people to be their best. You need all three. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks, Earl. I appreciate that plug. <laughs> you, you are welcome, sir. So, you know, here's another one that, that your book talks about that I think is is highly important. And a lot of people think that they're doing well, but really aren't. And it's communicating. And the reason I put it that way is, um, are you familiar with a gentleman named William Urey? No, I'm not. Okay, so he he was author of a book, um, Get to Yes. He's got another couple of books, but he he's he's a expert in communications. Or if, if you listen, if you listen to him, he's an expert in listening. Uh, but he talks about this thing where when he goes into organizations that are having problems, he focuses really on communications, and he always hears. Well, you know, I've sent emails, I've put up memos, I've done all these things. I'm communicating. I think I'm over-communicating. And he makes this distinction where, well, first, you can't over-communicate. And second, you have to understand that for most people, just about the time you're tired of saying it is when they're just starting to listen. And so he makes, you know, he makes a, a lot of great points about communication and, and listening as part of communication. So why do you think uh, that communication is such an important skill and, and how can people really get better at communicating? Well, that, Dr. Frank Luntz uh, once said, it is not what you say that matters, it's what people hear. Mm. So if you, if, you, if you dissect what I just said, it's not what you say that matters, it's what the other person hears. Uh, it really means you have to put yourself, when you're communicating, either to an individual or to a group, you have to put yourself in their shoes. And that person 
or that group. Let's let's keep it at a person for a moment. That person that you're trying to communicate to could be a like thinker or somebody who thinks nothing like you. It could be a six-year-old or a 60-year-old. It could be a, a male or a female. It could be a conservative or a liberal. It could be an American or a foreigner. It almost doesn't matter who the person is. If you have a singular message you're trying to communicate, you need to put yourself in their shoes and then communicate your message to them in terms that they best understand. So, for example, when I wrote my philosophy of command when I became a battalion commander in 1989, which, by the way, is in my book in Appendix A, uh, I wrote it with a view towards making sure that every soldier, no matter what his, uh, and I had nothing but male soldiers because I had a combined arms task force of armor, infantry, and field artillery, no matter what their intellectual depth was, would be able to read and understand exactly what I was saying in my philosophy of command. I wanted to communicate at the appropriate common denominator uh, to make sure that I connected. I have read technical documents that I have zero idea uh, what what they said, and uh, and it's frustrating. Many of your listeners have probably had a lawyer or an IT person or a medical person talk to them in terms that are unique to that professional field and not understood what was being said. And so effective communications is all about analyzing who is it I'm talking to, whether it's a person or a group, and then communicating to them in terms that they best understand. The other thing I'd tell you is that when you're talking and you see the other person on the edge of their seat, you can tell through their body language to respond. It means they're not fully listening. Mm-hmm. So so maybe it's time to take a breath to let them get off their chest, whatever it is they've got. You know, the effective communications is not just about the spoken word. It's about the body language that goes back and forth. And you need to be able to effectively read body language to understand whether or not you're connecting effectively uh, with your audience. Yeah, no, I love that. It always takes me back to a uh, an Albert Einstein quote. He says, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Not not the listener. Yeah, that's you. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, yeah, I mean, you, you've said a lot of great stuff here, and I really uh, appreciate the way this conversation is going. Uh, but, but I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about uh, another key element in your book that I think is very critical for organizations and that's setting and you just kind of mentioned it there just setting those expectations especially when you have a new organization or when people first join a new organization and or when you take over a leadership role in a new organization so why is it so critical to set those organizational expectations yeah so that's a great question let me let me ask a rhetorical question for your listeners uh, have you ever worked for somebody uh, who came into the organization, a new boss, and two or three months later, you're still trying to figure them out, and you're still trying to figure out what they think is important. You're trying to understand what their personal quirks are, and that is very, very frustrating. It's happened to me a number of times. So an effective leader is going to go into a new organization and make sure that the organization and its senior leaders certainly understand everything they can about this new leader from the very first day. 
So when I wrote my philosophy of command in 1989, I did it uh, with a view towards handing this out to all my senior leaders in the organization on the very first day and then talking to them about uh, what I thought was important, what was non-negotiable, my vision for the organization, the direction I wanted everybody to go, and any personal quirks that I had. Let me tell a quick story. I once worked for a three-star general. He was uh, came into the organization. I was his deputy. I was a two-star. He came into the organization, and uh, the first Tuesday, I think it was, that he was there, we had a staff meeting, and it was regularly done either every Tuesday or every other Tuesday. I don't recall right now. But it was at 9 o'clock in the morning. We had a conference room with a long table. His chair was at the front uh, end of the conference table, and then the staff was down the side and so on and so forth. So he came in about uh, about five or ten minutes before the meeting started. He sat at the, his designated place at the end of the table, and before 9 o'clock, all the staff started showing up, and there was a clock at the other end of the room that was one of those standard governmental clocks that has a brown shell and a white background and black handles, and that's about it, <laughs> and just numbers. And he just didn't say a word the entire time, and he watched that clock. And when the second hand of that clock hit 9 o'clock, he turned to his aide. He said, close the door and lock it. So he did. Captain went over, closed the door, locked it, and we started our meeting. Well, there were two empty chairs at the table, two colonels, full colonels that had not gotten in the room before nine o'clock. And sure enough, after a couple of minutes, perhaps, or seconds, there was a knock at the door. And the aide started to get up to go over to open the door, and the general turned to him and said, don't open the door. So there were two <laughs> colonels that didn't make the meeting, that didn't get into the meeting, who were then humiliated on the very first meeting and were, felt that way for, I don't know how long, certainly weeks, perhaps longer. They felt like they had zero credibility with the new boss and they had to rebuild it from scratch. So what's the moral of this story? Your listeners can decide whether that was an effective or not an effective way of communicating the importance of timeliness. And some people associate timeliness with discipline. And I'm not arguing that there isn't an association with it. But another approach might have been during that first meeting, if he had a thing about timeliness, that's one of the things he could have talked about. And he could say, you know, I got this thing about timeliness. I think it reflects discipline or indiscipline. So if a meeting's supposed to start at nine o'clock, everybody should show up uh, five minutes before and be there. And then, hey, it's on anybody if they don't meet that. Those two colonels, I don't know what the reason was for them being late, but, you know, they could have had valid reasons for being late, but it didn't matter because for weeks afterwards and perhaps months after that, they had to dig out of a hole with the brand new boss. And so what I usually do when I go into an organization, aside from writing out the philosophy of command or the, the, the civilian equivalent of that, I also have a briefing which I call Weldon on Weldon. And it is a basically self-reflection of me, which I validated with many, many people who have either worked for me or worked with me over the years. Uh, I said, this is how I th see myself. Please confirm or deny. And I got this, this briefing to a point where I was comfortable that it was a true reflection of me. And it included personal quirks. It included strengths and weaknesses for me. 
And for your listeners, you can find Weldon on Weldon in Appendix B in my book uh, as an example. I mean, you can do it your own way. But the most effective leaders I had uh, were the ones that went into an organization and on the very first day, they made crystal clear who they were, how they operated, and where they wanted to go. And then there was no ambiguity from that point forward. And two or three months later, we're not scratching our heads saying, what, what does this guy want? I, I just can't figure it out. And I know some of your listeners have had that experience. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it, it shocks me. Even as many times as it's happened, it still shocks me uh, to go into an organization, chat with a leader, and hear them complain about, you know, this person isn't doing this or that person isn't doing that. And when I ask them, have you set that expectation for them? Do they know that that's what you expect of them? Well, they should just know. Well, no, yeah. they shouldn't just magically know, right? You need to tell them. Yeah, my, my philosophy of command is about six or seven pages long. Uh, let me just read to you a couple of lines in the very first page. All right. It says, it's dated 27 July 1989, and it says, as I join the 2nd Battalion, 10th Cavalry, I owe it to each of you to describe in some detail my philosophy of command. If you understand the thrust of this memo, you will understand me. Hmm. And then signature block, and then the rest of it is lays it out. And again, it's Appendix A in my book. Uh, so I think it's important that people understand uh, you know, the direction you want to go and as much as they can about a leader. Here's another command philosophy that you can put on a three by five card. It was said by Abraham Lincoln. When I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. That's my religion. That's mm. pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and that's, that, but that's a good, I like that one because you're right. It's simple and it doesn't have to be, uh, you mentioned technical memos before. It doesn't yeah. have to be a long, drawn-out technical memo. It can be that simple just to set the expectation. Yep, exactly. Yeah, love it. Well, Craig, we are coming up on about 50 minutes here, and this has been an outstanding conversation. Uh, I know we, we've got to a lot of great points, but there's also a lot of meat left on this bone here. Uh, so I really want to encourage people, again, make sure you go out and grab a copy of Leadership, The Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best by Craig B. Weldon. Um, it's a great book. I uh, really, really do encourage you to add this to your bookshelf and reference it, uh, have it ready as a quick reference. Uh, but General, before we, uh, before we close out here, is there anything that we didn't get to that you would really love to leave the listeners with? Yeah, let me go back to the three-star general uh, because I really, really respect him uh, because I ended up working for him for quite some time. That was just a story of the first day. But that same general, uh, as the months went on and on and on and on, he was absolutely the consummate gentleman. He never raised his voice in anger. He never appeared to get upset. He was very organized. He was very smart. He was very capable. 
he was a Myers-Briggs ISTJ, which is what I am, uh, which means he's very, you know, sharpen your pencils at the end of the day, line them up on your desk so they're ready for the next morning, make a list of what you're going to do the next day, check it off as you go. That's kind of what an ISTJ is all about. But I had a colonel come up to me one day, uh, about a year into the co his command, and he said to me, you know, General So-and-so is the toughest guy I have ever worked for. And I said, really? Why is that? And he said, because I never wanted to disappoint him. Mm. And I thought, wow, that is powerful. Here, this colonel got up every day, and he wanted to do everything he possibly could to not just do the best he could for uh, uh, his own self-satisfaction, but also for the organization, but for the boss, too. And I know that just about everybody in that organization felt the same way. We had a magnitude of effort that was compounded by the inspirational leadership of this general officer that led the organization that is rarely found. And I think the most inspirational leaders have all those character traits that I talked about, use many of the techniques that I wrote about in my book. And you don't have to do very much if you're that kind of leader, except point in the direction and say, that's where I want to go. And the, and they the team will carry you there. Yeah, it's it is uh, it is absolutely amazing how effective uh, that can be. There is a quote uh, that I think is um, a couple of quotes here. Um, if I have uh, Sir Sir Isaac Newton said this: If I have been able to see further than others, it was because I stood on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of a description of humility. Uh, and I think some of the best leaders recognize that everybody in the organization got you where you are. You know, you may have individual talents, and certainly I'm not discrediting that. But if you're the leader of a large organization, you can't get it to the finish line by yourself. And you need to recognize the collective efforts of the entire team. That's what John Wooden used to do. Uh, when he said, there are no individual stars in this team, even though there were. The way we're going to win national championships is to have five guys on the floor working together. Yep, 100%. No, I love it. I love it. Well, General, thank you for spending uh, pretty close to the last hour with myself and, and my listeners. Like I said, I don't know about you, but this uh, this conversation has been great, and the time has just flown by. Yeah, it's been fun. Uh, I love it. No, thank you. And and. Uh, before we do close out, I always I want to make sure that people know how to find you, how to reach out to you if they want to bring you in to speak to their organization. Uh, if they take our advice and they go and buy a copy of the book, what are some great ways for them to, to do that, to reach out to you and find a copy of the book? Well, you can go to my website, craigweldon.com. You can find the book. Uh, it'll link to Amazon. It's available in print, digital form, and audio. Uh, you can also contact me through my website, uh, info at craigweldon.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I just got my second COVID shot last week, and so I'm going to start doing live events in April, and I'm excited about that because there's nothing like engaging with real people instead of a, a screen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm excited about that. I've got a, an event in uh, Savannah, Georgia in a couple of weeks and another one in Tennessee, uh, the week after that. So I'm, I'm excited to get out and about again. Oh, outstanding. We're in Tennessee, if you don't mind me asking. It's in Gatlinburg. It's a medical group. Okay. Uh, so I'm sure they're going to take the appropriate precautions. 
but I suspect many of them have been vaccinated just like I have. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll be okay. Nevertheless, I'll apply all the appropriate pandemic protocols of mask and distance and all that. But I'm going to give a presentation similar to the conversation that we've had today. No, I love it. I, I was just curious. Uh, that, that was my backyard growing up. I grew up in Northeast Tennessee about maybe an hour and a half, two hours from Gatlinburg. Really? So yeah, it's beautiful Good. territory. Uh, you're going to love it. Good. I'm looking forward to it. There you go. Well, all right. Well, listeners, and thank you for spending this uh, last hour or so with uh, General Craig B. Weldon, U.S. Army retired, and me, Earl Brian, your host. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Quite frankly, I don't see how you couldn't have because it was outstanding. Uh, I will have uh, Craig's information in the show notes with his website, his book, and the books that he mentioned. Uh, so they'll just be one click away for you to uh, get, consume, and uh, add to your leadership development arsenal. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, uh, you just reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, any ideas for future guests, any uh, stories you'd like to hear me share and dissect, uh, reach out right there. I want to thank you all again for taking uh, your responsibility very serious to share the show, rate the show, and and make sure that we use uh, your power to help climb us on the ratings uh, the way the algorithms work. So messages like General Weldon's can get spread further and reach more people. With that, thank you very much for being a part of the audience, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B, and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.